Okay, welcome to the Marathon Running Podcast, episode number five. My guest today is Dr. David Neiman. I spoke with Dr. Neiman over the phone earlier this week, but before I play your interview, I'm going to read through part of his bio from the Appalachian State website. Uh, And actually, before I even do that, let me point out um, that he really kind of blew up my understanding of the role of carbohydrates when it comes to training and racing. I mean, I've been trying to get to the bottom of this idea of teaching your body to be more fat efficient at higher running intensities. And frankly, the science he laid out for me basically says the opposite of what I thought was true. Um, and what I've always heard from runners and coaches. Um, It was actually a little startling to hear, but just pay attention when we start talking about this concept of teaching your body to use fat um, and how carbohydrate plays a role in that. Um, But besides that, he had a lot of really fascinating things to say about diet in general, Uh, the immune system, which is his main area of focus. And he had some really practical advice on how to stay healthy while training hard. So first, here is a little background on Dr. Neiman himself. David Neiman is a professor at Appalachian State University and director of the Human Performance Lab at the North Carolina Research Campus in Kannapolis, North Carolina. He's a pioneer in the research area of exercise and nutrition immunology. Dr. Neiman has received more than $10.9 million in research grants and has published more than 370 peer-reviewed publications in journals and books. He is the editor-in-chief of the sports nutrition section of the journal's Nutrients and Frontiers in Nutrition, and he also sits on 10 journal editorial boards, including Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise and the International Journal of Sports Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism. His publications have been cited more than 41,000 times. He's the author of nine books on health, exercise, science, and nutrition. He has served as vice president of the American College of Sports Medicine, and he has served two terms as president of the International Society of Exercise and Immunology. Uh, Dr. Neiman has run 58 marathons with a PR of 237. Now, here is my conversation with Dr. David Neiman. Well, Dr. Neiman, thanks so much, first of all, for taking a minute to talk to me today. Sure thing. I'd like to kind of break this into two sections. Uh, First of all, focus on health and then talk about performance separately when it comes to marathoning. Okay. Um, Because I've been reading a lot of your work and listening to things you've said over the past few years. and. Um, What I'm gathering is that uh, marathoners should be cautious uh, with their training and racing 
um, when it comes to how it affects their immune system. Yes. So in a nutshell, uh, running a marathon race or training at that level, uh, it's a physiological insult uh, to the immune system. Uh, The immune system will reflect the stress that the body is going through. And then there is dysfunction that can occur for hours and even days afterwards, depending on the immune measure. And, uh, and then the odds of illness can go up. And so especially in uh, this time of a pandemic, we're telling people, just keep it under control. I think people can go ahead and train, but keep within themselves and avoid getting into the immune dysfunction uh, during the recovery that would then allow the virus to multiply and then make you sick. So can you summarize the difference between uh, exercise that is actually good for your immune system and exercise that is actually bad for, where is that line drawn? Yeah, so most of the studies have looked at 30, 60 minutes And that amount of activity can be running, walking, swimming, cycling, jogging, Um, all of that, um, just about every study, it's it's been overwhelming, uh, has shown that the immune system responds in a positive manner and the immune system actually improves its function during the bout and for several hours after the bout. Uh, What happens is during that amount of exercise, Um, important immune cells are recruited from the spleen, the bone marrow, the lungs, come into the blood compartment, circulate through the body at a higher rate than normal. This is like putting the military on patrol. And then the odds of uh, engaging a pathogen and then killing it improve because of the increased circulation of the cells. Now, that all kind of hangs in there. Uh, as you start getting around 90 minutes, let's say you're running marathon race pace, you get around 90 minutes, your glycogen stores are starting to drop. And uh, we showed after one hour, the stress hormones are starting to really increase. So what you have is cortisol, epinephrine going up, glycogen going down, down, down. And right around 90 minutes, and, and this can vary from person to person, um, red flags start coming up uh, in the immune system. You can measure several aspects of immunity that just are not performing normally. And then if you keep going and you get out there uh, where you get glycogen depleted and you hit the wall and you just feel terrible, uh, and, and we have all felt that as marathon runners. I've run 58 marathons and ultra marathons. I've hit the wall many times. When that happens, when you are glycogen depleted, the stress hormones are sky high and there's a lot of immune dysfunction. Now, normally, um, well, we call it the open window um, that then <clears throat> during uh, that exercise for, you know, after the 90 minutes and then for several hours afterwards, There's an open window where viruses can multiply at a higher rate than normal. And it's all about the viral load, how much virus you've been exposed to. And then 
Uh, if you have enough virus, it can multiply and make you sick. We found after the LA Marathon that the odds of getting sick after a marathon were six times higher than normal. Now, that race is run in March every year. I've run that race several times. So that that's kind of a uh, high respiratory infection type of month. And so uh, it, within that context, uh, we had the odds of getting sick six times higher than normal. Um, we have even shown at the Western States uh, Endurance Run, that 100-mile race mm-hmm. from Squaw Valley through the mountains uh, to Auburn, we spent five summers there uh, researching hundreds of runners. Um, we showed uh, that one out of four got sick uh, during the two-week period after that race, and that's held in June. So we know uh, study after study um, has shown that when you mix heavy exertion and then there's travel and lack of sleep, stress, we all get stressed, um, that that combination then can affect the immune system and, and then the odds of getting sick go up. And that's why right now in this pandemic, I feel it's a good thing that marathon races are not being held. The The race itself isn't too bad because usually the runners spread out. It's outside. Uh, but it, it's just all the trimmings that come with a race, the travel, the lack of sleep, um, the pre-race, post-race, the exposure to people. It's just right now uh, a good thing that races are not being held. So you have the risk of getting sick sounds like increasing as a result of these types of events when you through the heavy exertion. Um, Are there any more long lasting or long term health risks associated with long endurance running? Right. So uh, we recently published a paper on an athlete. He was an adventure athlete that was the first human to trek across Antarctica uh, unassisted, unaided. I don't know if you uh, heard about that. That uh, was done in December 2019. And so we followed him for 28 weeks. We followed him as he was training uh, to go across Antarctica, came to our lab several times. And then the two-month period where he was trekking hours and hours every day, he lost a lot of weight. And so we used a new uh, methodology called proteomics. And proteomics allows us to take a single drop of blood and then to, to use that drop of blood and measure hundreds of proteins, many of them related to the immune system. And so we uh, had him take these uh, finger stick drops of blood, put them onto a card, dry room temperature, and then you can carry them as you you trek. And we looked at uh, scores of immune-related proteins, and we showed that during the second month of him being in Antarctica when he's losing weight, he's not sleeping, he's pushing hard, um, that his immune system looked terrible. Um, he had a, uh, a bifunctional uh, state of dysfunction. So that occurred. We expected it. But then 
unexpectedly, we followed him for five weeks afterwards. And that state of dysfunction continued during the entire five-week period. He had put himself into an overtraining state. And when you get into that state, then the immune dysfunction is almost chronic and it can last months. And there's some studies that claim even years. Hmm. Um, well, let's suppose that a, a marathon runner is, is uh, they have a performance oriented goal um, and they are able to helpfully train and not get into an overtrained state such as this guy. Is there any adaptation to the higher volumes and intensities of training that happens so that uh, these risks of getting sick can be diminished over time as a result of adapting to the higher loads of training? Um, We know that as you get fitter and fitter, that you can control exercise-induced inflammation and oxidative stress better. That we know. However... What happens as we all get fitter and fitter, then we train harder and harder and run faster and faster during the race events and during training. And so it's all relative. We still end up operating at a high stress uh, level. Everybody's just kind of knocking on that boundary line, seeing how close they can get and adapt and recover and keep going because all of all of us wanted to get a PR. My best marathon was a a 237. You know, that's a six minute pace. Took me 10 years to do that, uh, to get to that level. And I tried and tried and I never could get better than that. But nonetheless, that's the goal. All of us are pushing the limits. And because of that, any adaptations that occur are being negated as we keep pushing harder and harder. So the odds of sickness are there. Um, and and the chance for people to fall off the edge and we call it overreaching when they're just like falling off and then if you fall completely off we call that overtraining and the immune system does not function well uh during overreaching overtraining um you mentioned glycogen depletion being a major factor that sort of triggers uh this negative spiral of events on your immune system um and for marathon running uh, that's a huge deal for um, people who not necessarily are worried about getting sick, but are worried about running out of energy to keep running at a high intensity during a marathon. So a, a big emphasis is put uh, on the ability to use fat more efficiently so that you can preserve the the glycogen during a race um, and use fat for energy at a higher percentage is there any possibility of these immune cells you talked about also having the ability to use fat for their functions? Okay, this is a hot area of research right now, and there's a big debate. Our lab um, has published many papers in this area. What we have shown is that when the athlete keeps carbohydrate-fed, And so, you know, we all train two, three, sometimes more. Um, We drain our carbohydrate supplies. But if you take carbohydrate before and during and after and keep your blood sugar up, we showed that that would mitigate 40% of the exercise-induced inflammation that was 
undergirding the immune dysfunction. And so we're telling uh, athletes all, and, and we just published a brand new paper looking at a new measure called oxylipins. And we showed that carbohydrate can knock those pro-inflammatory oxylipins way down. And so we're telling athletes do not train hard um, in a carbohydrate depleted state. People think that their body will adapt better and that they will become uh, fitter if they like in an overnight fasted state, wake up and just take some water and go out the door and just drain and deplete themselves. And what we have shown is that the metabolic dysfunction and the immune dysfunction is really high, takes a long time to recover. It's a physiological insult that if you keep repeating it, it's going to bring you down. We showed that if you have carbohydrate, and we showed it could be uh, fruit carbohydrate like bananas. Uh, Some studies have looked at raisins. Uh, It could be juice. It doesn't have to just be sugar water. Uh, Most of us, uh, we want to keep healthy as we're doing all of this, and and fruit is a a good uh, way to do it with water. And and so we showed that that – then uh, help the immune system get through it better. Metabolic recover, recovery was faster. And overall, it's, it's, it's like climbing a mountain uh, with ropes, you know, and pitons instead of just free climbing. Mm-hmm. Um, because you, you have a little bit of support there in case something uh, goes wrong. If you go too far and you start getting in an overtrained state, the carbohydrate will help you uh, fall you know, keep away from that threshold. Right. So it's kind of like if, if you can help yourself, why not help yourself with the carbohydrates? Um, well, well that, I, I also, before you leave that point, because sure. you brought up one thing I forgot to answer, is you wanted to know if the immune cells could handle using fat. Right. They, they do not. They love glucose. That's their, the immune cells are like any other cell. They have to have fuel in order to do their thing. And the fuel is glucose. And that is why if you get glycogen depleted and you're not taking carbohydrate, the immune cells just go to pot. We published some papers. We were just amazed at how the immune cells would not function Mm. without uh, glucose. So something you hear a lot from marathoners uh, when it comes to glycogen is the fear of running out because of the limited storage capacity and the fear that uh, you during a marathon, you could you could ingest a whole lot, or you know, take it in, drink as much as you want, but you may not quote absorb all the carb or all the carbs that you're taking in. And uh, so, I guess the the idea that there's a limited, there's a finite amount of carbs you can store in your muscles, liver, in your blood. On the other hand, the fat is this unlimited source of fuel. And but it sounds like you're saying the prospect of teaching your body to use the fat more, whether it's healthy or not for immune system, is it even a valid concept? So um, there's been some great studies uh, where they had athletes use carbohydrate during training and then did not use carbohydrate during training. And then they looked at the ability of the muscle cells Uh, See, as you get fitter and fitter, the cells could use more fat for fuel. 
preserving the glycogen. At the same time, your muscles will store up to double the amount of glycogen. So the fitter you get, the more carbohydrate you store as glycogen and the better able you are to burn fat. Those adaptations occurred in the runners who were training with carbohydrate. So it didn't matter. You you can use the carbohydrates. You feel better. You recover better. You perform better. You race with carbohydrate. A person is foolish not to race with carbohydrate. And then that effect is your training as you're about to race. You want to be very specific. Train with carb, race with carb, and you still will adapt. And and then, as you know, the, the most elite uh, runners in the world are able to hold their pace the whole time for 26.2 miles. And and so they have a, a achieved the goal, which is basically they avoided glycogen depletion and were able to maintain the pace. Wow. So it sounds like the fat ap- adaptation I was asking about does occur, but it sounds like some people may be going about it the wrong way by trying to directly, like you were saying, wake up in a fasted state, try to only use fat as fuel during training. So it sounds like by using the carbs during training, you're becoming fit and becoming more fat efficient at the same time. Yeah, I was at, um, in Europe, they brought together some of the top sports nutrition researchers in the world. It was hosted by uh, Coca-Cola and they flew us out and we all sat there and debated this issue. And all of the experts uh, were in agreement except for a couple that uh, you need to train with carb and race with carb. You'll adapt, you'll perform better, you'll recover better. The net effect is you'll be a better athlete. Humans were not meant to have high intensity effort with no carbohydrate. That's we We have weak links. There's two weak links in humans. We are not good at storing a lot of carb. And, and when we run fast, we use almost entirely carb. And then the second weakness we have is that to keep our body temperature under control, we sweat a lot and our body water can fall. So, you know, you have to drink a lot of water, at least a liter, liter and a half per hour. And then you need to have uh, at least 30, 60 grams of carb per hour of high intensity exertion. And if you do that, you're going to train better, become a fitter athlete and a better athlete. And in this whole thing that you should uh, train low, you know, people say train low carb and then race high carb. It doesn't make physiological sense because you need to train the way you're going to race. Um, so let me understand a little better about uh, exactly how the carbs are used in the body. Because if I understand it correctly, when you ingest carbs, it can be stored in the muscles as glycogen, in the liver as glycogen, and then in your blood as glucose. Is that accurate? I wouldn't say it's stored as glucose in the blood, but the glycogen is the carbohydrate storage mechanism in the liver and the muscle. And then there's always some glucose in the blood that is replenished by the liver primarily breaking down as glycogen and feeding the glucose in. So when you're say running a marathon or exerting yourself heavily, are these three different locations, uh, the blood glucose, the liver and muscle glycogen, um, 
are the are the glycogen and glucose deployed differently or at different times for different reasons from those three areas during high intensity exercise? Yep. So uh, the muscle glycogen is the preferred uh, fuel depot because the muscle cells are contracting and then there's glycogen right there and they use it. As that gets lower and lower and lower, uh, then the liver kicks in more after two hours of exertion and starts feeding uh, uh, glucose into the blood that then gets to the muscle. The good news is that if you take 30 to 60 grams of exogenous carbohydrate, you drink it or you eat fruit uh, with water, then uh, studies show you can keep your blood sugar higher and maintain the pace about 45 minutes longer than if you had not done that. And it doesn't help you run faster. It just helps you keep that pace going longer, about 45 minutes on average. So if I understand this right, it sounds like for the actual exercise movement, the the muscle glycogen is actually fueling the exercise. The liver is sort of a reserve tank, so to speak, and the mm-hmm. bloodstream is just a channel by which the liver can send the reserves back to the muscles. And the intestines will, even during exercise, if you put carb down in there, it will release it uh, into the bloodstream and it can be used by the working muscle. And and that is the good news is, is that that can happen during exercise. Ah, um, so you mentioned that as you get fitter, your storage capacity grows for carbs and glycogen. Mm-hmm. Yep. What, what's the best way to ensure that you've say like somebody the, the day or days leading up to a marathon? Um, Cause obviously we want to take in carbs while we're exercising um, as you're saying, but it sounds equally important to make sure you have stored enough to begin with. So what's the best way to ensure that you've stored the maximum possible? So um, the best studies show that your percent carb in the diet needs to be 60, 70%. That means you're just emphasizing a lot of carbs and that's going to be a lot of plant-based carbohydrate. There's going to be rice and you know, whole grains and um, uh, potatoes, starches, tubers. And so you you also dates and raisins and fruit. And you, you keep the carb content of the diet high. But at the same time, every time you train, you deplete, you have to have some rest and recovery for the glycogen to get up. And then you keep doing that goes higher and higher and you start storing more and more uh, carb, but you can't knock yourself out day after day after day because you have to allow the carb to get replenished in, in the muscle and the liver. And so, you know, of course, everybody knows you can't go out two, three hours at high intensity every day. Humans just can't do that. And, and so every time you're kind of knocking back a bit and you have enough carb in the diet, it'll just replenish And uh, as you get fitter and fitter and keep that high carb going, then you'll have more and more in the muscle. Um, The other good thing is I think uh, you've heard of tapering before race events. And if you taper, 
um, a few days, um, you can actually have the muscles almost super compensate and put in more carb uh, than normal because you're going through a taper all the way down to a complete rest state. So if you were uh, loading up on carbs before a marathon race or even a, a big uh, training session, um, if you want to make sure you have stored in your muscles and liver the most you possibly can, is there some kind of rule of thumb with number of calories or any way to measure how many carbs you've actually stored? It is all about quality of the diet. Just make sure that it's a lot of carbs, 60, 70%. But Dan, see, as we all know, we don't want to gain weight before a race. And so you just kind of monitor your weight. You're going to gain a little bit as you taper because there's some water and glycogen loading in there. So there might be a couple pounds more. But in general, uh, you try to keep your calories um, so that you're in balance. You don't want to gain fat. So you just – everybody – athletes are good at energy balance. They can kind of sense how much they should take in. You don't want to be in an energy drain situation. You have to be in a – you caloric situation, matching your expenditure with intake. Just make sure a lot of what you take in is carbohydrate. Okay. Um, when you say you've had a meal rich in good carbohydrates um, at any point in time, uh, generally how long, kind of what's the life cycle of that food you take in? How long can a meal be converted and stored before it's worked out or sent, you know, evacuated or. So the, uh, when, if you deplete your muscles of glycogen, it's going to take one to two days uh, to get it all back in. And so after a real hard race or training uh, session, um, you can eat a lot of carb. It's just not going to happen quicker than one to two days. So you got to have some taper, some rest to allow all that to happen. Okay. You mentioned that, uh, you know, you can have too much and you don't want to gain weight and that balance. What if uh, there's a person, you know, training for performance, but they also know that they are not lean enough and they say they know they need to lose 10, 15 pounds. Is there a healthy way to train and have a calorie deficit to lose excess fat? Yeah, that that should be done, you know, months before the event, because when you're in an energy drain situation, it also means your muscle carb is going to be down and you're not going to feel real good in your workouts. It's it's pretty difficult. So you got to kind of do that way out, suffer through it, get your fat where you want it to be and then get normal. Okay. Um so you mentioned the quality of food and the carb, um, you know, plant-based carbs um, sound like the highest quality, um, but during a marathon, I would think that you probably want the simplest carb possible. Is that true? Yeah. So the pre-race uh, meal and the carbs you take during the event, everybody has to practice and see what works for them. For most people, it's keeping the fiber down. If you have too much fiber in the pre-race meal, um, so for example, 
like you would have whole grain uh, oats or wheat cereal. Um, what I always did, even though I'm an expert in this area, I would use um, just refined uh, hot cereal. Uh, there, there's many of them on the market. So you just want to have hardly any fiber because it doesn't help you during a race. And then during the event, um, some people um, will take in fruit juices or sports drinks, and then some will munch on bananas at aid stations. Um, I've used dates during races before. And it's really helped me. Watermelon I've used. Everybody has to just um, practice finding the the balance of carbohydrate intake that makes them feel really good as they run without having GI distress. Everybody's different. Everybody has to find their thing. Right. You know, diet is such a, uh, it's almost like a political topic nowadays, Um Carbs seem like a um, misunderstood thing, and I wonder if I mean, how do you look at carbs? Because I peop, I think people say no carbs, but maybe not all carbs are equal. Okay, the, the science is very clear. I mean, we are a carbohydrate eating species. We have to have carbs. It needs to make up more than half of the calories we eat. It's it's the best for long-term health. It's the best for performance. The science is totally, totally clear on this. And then along come some fad diets, the ketogenic diet and the high-protein, high-fat, low-carb diets. These are all fringe, um, usually media-driven books and authors that don't know the science. The science is very clear. My area is the immune system. The immune system has to have carb in order to function properly. You can't avoid carbs and have a good functioning immune system. You can't perform at a high intensity for hours unless you have carbohydrate. Studies show that the average person using carbohydrates during exercise has a 3 to 6% performance advantage. 3 to 6%. That's massive in terms of performance. Everybody's trying to eke out seconds. If you do the math, 3 to 6% is quite a bit, especially in a marathon. And, and that's the science. It's very clear. And it's unfortunate that there are pseudo-scientists out there just basically pushing their false theories. And then the media picks up on it because they can sell a story and then people get very confused. But if you talk to the hardcore scientists and look at the position papers in our field, they're all very, very consistent that we are a carbohydrate eating species for health and performance. What about the fear people have that too much, uh, too many simple sugars will immediately be stored as fat? Now, so everything is about energy balance. First of all, we don't recommend simple sugars except during a race. Okay. okay. And, and, and so during training, um, the dietary guidelines for Americans are a perfect template for the athlete, which is that more than half your plate for, should be fruits and vegetables and whole grains. And then uh, everything else is low-fat uh, protein sources and dairy products. And, and this has been uh, provided to the American public for decades 
it's scientific consensus. It there's nothing strange about it. We know we have people who eat a lot of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and then some nuts and seeds and beans and, and they are primarily a plant eating species with healthy dairy and meat. Um, that they live longer, have less heart disease, less uh, cancer, less diabetes. Uh, it's easier to maintain your weight. And the bonus at the same time is you can train better at higher intensity for longer. So it all goes together. Everybody wants some magical new thing. There isn't really in this field. It's It's been studied since the 1960s. We've known this type of thing. And uh, it, it, you just stick with that and you'll be fine. But um, that's why we've been doing a lot of research with fruit. We're trying to let athletes know that uh, the sugar in bananas and dates and raisins um, that and, and juices, that those sugars are highly bioavailable before, during, and after exercise and have the same impact on performance as drinking a sugar drink. A sugar drink is just sugar with some coloring electrolytes, and it's fine. It works during exercise, and and that's that's fine during the event. But during training, just use fruit, um, and then an occasional sports drink. There's no need to drink sugar water um, during training, and you know the PR is big in this area, and people think you have to do that. We have published many studies now showing that fruit is is a healthy alternative to a sports drink for endurance athletes. You've mentioned whole grains a few times, and I've, I'm wondering because it seems like the term whole grain gets tagged on to a whole lot of products, and I'm skeptical of of what is actually a whole grain and what is not. Um, so like take for instance, bread, you have, you know, white bread just from bleached flour. You have whole wheat flour bread. You have sprouted wheat flour bread, and then you have sprouted bread with no flour. It's, do you, do you know much about the, the quality of different types of bread? Cause I feel like that's probably a big source of, of, energy for people who think they're getting whole grains, but I don't necessarily know that they are. Yeah. So uh, whole grain products, there's many kinds of whole grain products. So breakfast cereals, hot cereals, and then breads, and then um, the alternative types of breads, bagels, and this and that. You can get whole wheat now or whole grain products um, for just about any of these things. And the, uh, the USDA um, and the Department of Health and Human Services is recommending that at least half of the grain products that we take in every day be whole grain. And they're easy to find and see. The label has to be accurate. If it says 100% whole grain, then it is. And, and again, at least half of the grain products you take in should be whole grain. People... Uh, see, the the sports drinks is simple sugars, but equally bad is white bread and white bagels and cookies with white flour and desserts and all of that. These things uh, we know uh, cause uh, an increased incidence of diabetes. Uh, obesity is more prevalent. And the latest research is showing, <coughs> excuse me, that... Uh, 
the cardio metabolic response is such that heart disease is enhanced uh, when you eat too much of that stuff. So we weren't meant to eat a lot of simple added sugar or refined grain. It's equally bad for our health. And and then people throw out everything saying all carbs are bad, and that's not true. There's healthy carbs and bad carbs. It's the same with fats. There's healthy fats and there's bad fats. And and it's just finding the high-quality fats, the high-quality carbs, and the high-quality proteins and using that in our diets. And it's really pretty simple. If it's um, fruits and vegetables, whole grains, nuts and seeds and beans and low-fat dairy uh, and, and then low-fat meats, that's it. Simple. No controversy. No... Uh, no special books are needed, no gimmicks, no miracles. It's it's as simple as that. Yeah. You mentioned a refined grains. Would whole wheat flour, even though it's from whole grains or whole wheat, the process of it becoming flour, does that make it refined? No, the fiber is still there. Okay. So it, it's regarded as a whole grain product. Okay. Um, Well, we've uh, gotten through most of my questions really well. I'm really excited about some of this I'm learning. Um, Maybe we could wrap up with a uh, something practical. Um, I read about an experiment you did with a combination of blueberries and bananas. Yep. um, Where it sounded like uh, you had a group of subjects eat uh, blueberries daily for uh, some period of time. And then during a strenuous exercise, they uh, were kind of replenishing with bananas. Um, and it looks like the uh, inflammation and soreness and those kind of things was reduced. Um, can you explain explain what the, the combination of the blueberries and bananas is all about? Yeah, so we had four groups. Uh, the bottom line is somewhere on a cup of blueberries a day for two weeks. Others were on a placebo. We used freeze-dried in a powder, and they mixed it. And then during exercise, half of each of those groups were on bananas or just water. The The good news is that a cup of blueberries a day was enough to almost completely knock out the post-exercise inflammation. The, these guys did 75 kilometers of cycling. That takes two hours and 45 minutes on average. It was a mountainous course. So um, that amount of exercise had completely drained them. All sorts of red flags went up everywhere if they were on placebo and water. But if they were on a cup of blueberries for just two weeks or if they used bananas during exercise, it almost completely knocked out the post-race inflammation using a new measure called oxylipins. So the practical message is that uh, there are certain fruit sources that are very high in what we call polyphenols. Uh, Blueberries are one of the best. One cup of blueberries will give over 330 milligrams of polyphenols. And those are the, uh, what we call phytochemicals, the chemicals in plants that provide the color, the, the purple and then reds and oranges and all of these colors are these uh, polyphenols. Those go into our bodies. 
they actually go to the colon. The bacteria transform them into molecules that come back into the body, circulate for about a day or so until the kidneys clear them. While those pieces of gut-derived phenolics are circulating around, they exert anti-inflammatory, antioxidative effects. And for the first time, that paper you just mentioned, we showed that a cup of blueberries a day was enough to gain the anti-inflammatory effect that would help athletes improve their metabolic recovery better. It also showed that bananas, and we did a half a banana uh, every uh, 30 minutes, that that with water was also sufficient to knock down the inflammation. So we're just telling athletes it's simple, lots of fruits, especially berries in the diet. And then when you exercise, uh, make sure that you're taking in carb because uh, you're going to recover better. And there's nonsense of training, low carb. Um, you will adapt better and be a better athlete. Uh, in my viewpoint, um, it's an uh, unaccepted, unproven, uh, ill-founded, not recommended concept. Well, thanks for clearing that up for me. I, this is something I've been really curious about, and I appreciate your time and your help here. Um, hey, one more question. Where did you run your 237? That was Ukiah, California. It was the Ukiah Marathon. Okay. I did a 239 at the San Francisco Marathon. That was my second fastest. And that's a hilly one. That was ac actually my best marathon, the San Francisco Golden Gate Marathon. Even though it was a little slower, just the course being harder, you think that was your oh, best performance? Yep. That is a one hilly course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, you said how many have you run? 50, 58, 58. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I don't run marathons anymore. Yeah. I live on 13 acres. I put in at least two hours a day of manual labor. And, and I enjoy that a lot, but I ran marathons for about 30 years and really, really enjoyed it. But then what happened at least uh, to me is I got a lot of GERD near the end where I just had a lot of acid. I was throwing up acid uh, after the race and even in the latter stages of the race. And I could not solve the GERD problem. And so I walked away from it. Well, sounds like uh, you, you came away with lots of good experience and lots of good advice. I appreciate you uh, lending us your expertise today. Yeah, for um, sure. All right. Again, this is uh, Dr. David Neiman, and we'll go ahead and end it there. Thanks so much. Okay, Joe. Thanks for having me.